the best-selling compliance handbook by compliance evangelist and compliance podcast network founder tom fox has been updated revised and improved in its new second edition this new podcast series will build upon the best nuts and bolts compliance handbook around to provide you the best information on implementing and enhancing a best practices compliance program Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back for another episode, and you're in for a real treat today because I'm in for a real treat today. And we have Wei Chen. Wei Chen is extraordinarily well-known to the compliance community. So first of all, Wei, thank you so much for taking the time to visit with me today. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Always enjoy talking to you, Tom. So could you tell us what your current role is? Uh, My current role, my title is the Chief Compliance Officer. Chief Integrity Advisor, see, I slipped. Um, Chief Integrity Advisor uh, to the Attorney General for the, in the state of Hawaii. Um, so it's essentially, if we were more traditional, it would be a Chief Compliance Officer. But when we were discussing my title, I didn't like the word compliance and I didn't like the word officer. So we replaced both of those and I'm the Chief Integrity Advisor doing compliance work for the state government, essentially. So in looking at uh, doing a little research for this podcast, uh, I saw that you had worked, uh, you've been a federal prosecutor in AUSA, you've worked in the Department of Justice, uh, then you moved to the uh, private sector, and it appeared you started off in the uh, general counsel's office, or at least in the legal department of Microsoft, and had various legal roles, and then moved, uh, at some point, gravitated towards compliance. So I was like to maybe ask you, uh, if you could detail a little bit about your professional background and what led your evolution to from a more traditional legal department role to a more of a compliance role. So I really just fell into it. Um, I was uh, I was never really general counsel in the true sense of the word. So I was more of a specialist. When I was at Microsoft, I did intellectual property enforcement, so anti-piracy enforcement and litigation. Um, I was working with Microsoft in Eastern Europe and then in U.S. and was in New York when 9-11 happened. So during 9-11, I did a lot of volunteer work, which led me to leave Microsoft to go study theology, got a degree in theology, was in ministry for a brief time, and realized my temperament really was not suited for ministry. I was not... Uh, a litigator by nature. So when I contacted Microsoft and said, uh, I'd like to come back, they said, how would you like to go do compliance? Uh, I had never even heard of it. So I said, well, that sounds about as different as being uh, a minister in New Jersey. So I uh, moved uh, to China to take their first field position in compliance. That was how I got into it. Uh it's almost uh, uh, my role was similar. I uh, would, became a general counsel in an oil field service company and in 2007 had the largest FCPA fine in the history of the world ever, uh, $27 million. Doesn't make the top 30 anymore. Uh, and I was part of the new team they brought in to implement the compliance solution. And at that time, we had a very robust monitorship. Uh, but the fallout was or the outcome was I got to learn from the best. And so that's really what took me down my road uh, to compliance. But in the 207, 06, 07, 08 timeframe, my observation was that it was largely a lawyer-driven exercise with lots of written policies and procedures. And uh, and then it began to evolve. Uh, But I was wondering, uh, did you see that same evolution uh, in your time moving to compliance? 
So interesting that you said that. So I, as I mentioned, I, I fell into compliance from ministry and I discovered there's quite a lot of uh, similarities. There's a lot of prayer. Uh, there's a lot of confessions. And uh, so there's uh, more similarities than you would think. I, I did find the field to be very lawyer driven. I continue to find it so. And uh, so I, I think I started seeing the evolution I almost want to say I don't feel like I have started seeing the revolution yet, or I'm, I'm only seeing the start of it. Um, so indicating that I don't feel like it's gone far enough. Uh, I really do think lawyers should take um, uh, a much more, lawyers should be part of an interdisciplinary team that does this work. And I don't think that concept is yet prevalent. So I see the beginning of the movement to that, I would say maybe shortly before, when I started, before I started at DOJ. So maybe, so that was 2015, some, somewhere around that time, five, six, seven years ago. Slowly and, though. And one of the things that uh, I seem to observe from the public statements that I heard you make uh, in your early part of the uh, DOJ tenure was uh, to, to take a more behavioral approach to compliance. Uh, and now that I understand about your religious background, it makes a lot more sense to me that, to look at the people part of the equation rather than just the paper part of the equation. Uh, but before we get to the DOJ, uh, you also worked at Standard Charter. And I was intrigued there because I wondered if you were able to observe uh, a cultural difference in perhaps UK, EU approach vis-a-vis US approach in terms of values versus rules-based, or was it largely a similar across the globe, at least in the discipline you worked in at Standard Charter? So that was a question I asked myself the whole time I was at Standard Charter, which was not very long, but um, I, I observed a lot of differences, but I really couldn't tell. I constantly was asking, is what I'm observing, is it UK? Is it financial services? Or is it Standard Charter? It could be all three, it could be one of the three. And until I have, I, I felt like I didn't have the, enough time to have the breadth in the UK to, um, to make a more generalized analogy because uh, I'm always very weary of making that generalized assumption. But absolutely, uh, when, when you work cross-culture, uh, I observed a lot of differences, but I, I don't know how much of it can be truly attributed to a different culture of the society versus the industry versus the organization itself. Uh, if we could move back to the uh, uh, beginning of the evolution towards a, a little more behavioral approach in uh, compliance that uh, you observed uh, in your time in the Department of Justice, was was that just almost a natural evolution in thinking about compliance programs or uh, did you or others or did something drive that? Well, to, to me, it was natural. So I, when I took my very first compliance job, uh, people started talking to me about, oh, got to know about sentencing guidelines, got to know about, you know, um, uh, these sort of uh, standard stuff that we look at in the compliance. And I, I just thought it was very strange. I, I thought, well, I'm not taking sort of the guidelines for convicted felons as my standard um, that I'm trying to reach. And uh, you know, to me, I, my first role was was largely anti-bribery, FCPA focused. So to me, it was was a behavior from the beginning. It was a behavior question. It was how do we prevent people from engaging in this behavior? 
Um, you know, I talked to, as, as part of my own education process for getting into that role, I talked to a lot of people who had been practicing in the field. And I did find a lot of this very legalistic. When I tried to teach people, I didn't find it very useful to talk to them about the specifics of a US law. Um, I found it more interesting to find out why they want, they would have the reason or opportunities or motivations to engage in the behavior that we didn't want them to do and figure out how do we work so that we can change that behavior. So from the beginning was a very um, behavior oriented approach for me. When I went to the DOJ, I think I brought that just as, as who I am. So I think one of the first trainings I did for the, uh, for the fraud section, um, we, uh, people expected me to talk about policies and procedures. And to make my point, I printed out, and I'm very sorry as an environmentalist to say this, I printed out lots of piles of paper um, that related to regulations concerning government employee travels. Um, and there is more regulation than you think there would be. It was quite a lot. Um, so I brought those papers into the conference room and I started reciting them. I said, how many of you know about CFR, blah, 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 um, and blank faces all around. And I said, well, these are the rules that govern your travel. And do you know them? Obviously not. So how do you know you're complying with them? It's the processes that you go through. What do you do when you take a trip? You go to the travel desk, they arrange things for you. You trust them to have a system to make sure that you're compliant with all these rules that you have never read. Um, another way that I always make the point, um, particularly when I talk to a lawyer audience, and this is striking, um, I always ask whether it's law students or lawyers, uh, prosecutors, how many of you have read the entire Constitution of the United States? Usually, if I'm lucky, a quarter of the room might raise their hands. And then I'd say, I mean the whole Constitution, not just the Bill of Rights. And then pretty much all the hands will go down. Then, then the next question is, how do you know? How do we then comply with the Constitution? Well, it's built into the systems and structures around us. So, so to me, once you make that illustration to people, um, they begin to realize that people don't govern their daily lives by reading the codes and the regulations. There are systems and processes and behaviors, and that's what we need to focus on if a behavior outcome is what we're after. Uh, you were also one of the first people, or first persons I heard talk about uh, the use of data and uh, data to support your positions, data to help guide uh, where your compliance program may have gaps, may need remediation. Could you tell us a little bit about that uh, evolution in your thinking, or did you start with that thinking and really have to educate the rest of us? So that thinking really started in the fraud section. So when I was in the fraud section, um, a lot of times we, uh, you know, what we were talking about was how, how do we know, how do we find the proof that something was working? Um, and it came down to a lot of times I heard certainly um, Andrew Weissman, who was then the head of fraud section say, I want to see some data. I want to see some data. Uh, you know, I want to, uh, I want, I also want you to start developing some metrics and Honestly, I was actually quite resistant to this quantitative approach in the beginning and, you know, not surprisingly. Um, and then I really, 
it's I really can't recall at what point it became increasingly just it wasn't an overnight thing but increasingly uh, it became more and more compelling to me so when when I would ask a question about how do you know something is working and when we have a compliance officer and this happened only once I had a compliance officer um, who's actually currently in Texas um, but he wasn't at the time he um he came in he had a he had a database answer for everything every question we asked him he had data to back it back it up and i found that very compelling and we all did i mean so the prosecutors and i walked out of that that presentation we thought wow that was awesome um he actually really showed us with measurements how things worked and how he was tracking things so the more i saw the benefit of that, the more I dug into it. And I think I became a convert probably just around the time I was uh, you know, wrapping up my time in the fraud section and have become even more compelled as I, as I started to see people working with data. And the more I saw that, the more compelled um, I became, sort of convinced I became that this is, this is really uh, important in evidencing what we do is working. Uh, I've heard the compliance officer half of that conversation before. And of course that person will remain a name. So that's really fascinating uh, to me. Uh, if I could now turn to the article you and uh, Harvard professor Eugene Soltis wrote. Uh, and the thing that struck me was basically guys, it's not about the data. It's how you use the data and how do you measure. And the thing most people, including myself focused on was training effectiveness. So I was wondering uh, why you think it's the measurement and actually the use of the data that's so important. So I think the use of the so data to me like it is evidence. It is um, so when when you think about you know if if you turn on an air conditioning um, unit in your office or home, how do you know it's working? Well, you take the temperature, and and to me it's as simple as that. Um, and, and to put it in a more business-oriented uh, analogy, I often think about marketing function. Marketing function in, the, in its early days, it's just a simple cost center that people just thought, well, if we put up a lot, you know, we send out a lot of direct mail, if we put up a lot of you know, posters or uh, set, uh, do a lot of commercials, it's going to sell. Did it work? Did it not? We don't know. Um, but at some point, people started linking marketing with measuring incremental sales. And so if you think about that analogy, in the early days, people might have measured marketing by how many pieces of direct mail they sent. So that's what I call measuring efforts, how much you did. Ultimately, it's about measuring outcome. What is the outcome that you want? There are, uh, I'm actually reading an interesting marketing book right now, but when you think about marketing, there you, you, we've all seen really clever ads, right? But did those ads generate the buying behavior that they're hoping to generate? That's a separate question. Uh, the, the fact that a lot of people talk about an ad doesn't mean they actually went out and bought the product that the ad was trying to get you to do to, to buy. So, so I think with compliance, it's the same thing. I think we've been doing a lot of measuring efforts, and this is sort of the traditional well, I did a training, how many people attended? How many times did we do the training? How many sessions did we do? Uh, then there was the sort of little quiz at the end, which 
when you think about it, it tests nothing but short-term short memory. And we started doing these measurements, but we didn't really think about what they were actually measuring. What we need to think about more is what is the outcome that we're hoping to accomplish with these with compliance programs and with the component parts of it. And how do we measure that outcome? So really going back to define what are you doing this for? If you do it successfully, what does success look like? And try to find measurements for that. That to me is important because that goes to whether we're, we have all been wasting our time or not. So to me, that's a very, it's very important for that very reason is that I want to know whether the things we're doing is working. Um, in February of 2017, uh, a document was posted on the fraud section website entitled Evaluation of Corporate Compliance Programs. And if you weren't the author, you had a very large hand in it, I understand. But a couple of things struck me about that document and uh, I've heard a couple of public comments you've made about it. One was that you really wanted compliance officers to, to stop thinking about, you know, is this gift travel and entertainment over our limit? Or is this payment, single payment too much? And think much more holistically. And I was wondering uh, if that's a correct uh, read of what you uh, said. Uh, could you make expand on why compliance officers really need to think much more holistically? I think it goes back to whether we're wasting our, our time or not. So I, I want, you know, as, as a professional, I want the things that I do to actually to, to matter, to produce the result or something close to the result that I'm, I'm hoping for. And one of the things and one of the one of the things that originally motivated that that document was precisely the kind of proof, evidence, measurement, whatever you call it, that people were bringing in at the time. So they were bringing in the number of training sessions, the percentage of tra training attendees. They were bringing in binders and binders full of policies and procedures to show us. And uh, so I was known to say um, to compliance officers, uh, companies, and their outside counsel when they bring in those big binders, I say, if you can show me a single person at the company that's read all of those, then I'll read them. Usually they go quiet at that point. Um, so so I, I recognize that they were spending a lot of time on these things, uh, on these things that to us did not really say anything about whether their, comp their comp compliance program was working or not. So, so I thought, well, maybe we should tell them. I mean, let's be transparent. We're in the government. We should tell people when they come in for a compliance presentation, what would help their presentation? So that was the genesis behind, behind that document. It was about getting people to think about how do you prove that your program is working? Because at the point when they come into the fraud section to make a presentation on their compliance, it's for a particular purpose. Um, one is to show, they were hoping to show that at the time of the offense, they, they had an adequate compliance program, which is a hard argument to make sometimes because obviously something about that program didn't work that landed you in front of this, um, the, the, the Justice Department. So the second part they're trying to show is that our program since then has sufficiently improved so that this will not happen again. So how do you assure us that this will not happen again? There are some very practical um, things that we needed to see. There are some real evidence that we want to see. And those questions were really intended to guide people towards 
assessing where their program was really working because that was the answer that we wanted. In a podcast with Matt Kelly, uh, you, you said that uh, the questions were just that design, uh, excuse me, the evaluation was designed to have compliance pro, uh, practitioners ask questions about that program. I extrapolated that even a little further to say uh, you thought it'd be good if compliance practitioners were curious about their program and asking questions in a variety of ways. One of the, I do a podcast on leadership and one of the key leadership attributes seems to me to be curiosity, almost insatiable curiosity. And now that I know a little bit about your story, it would seem to me that you're insatiably curious as well. Do you find that to be a a good uh, skill or trait of a compliance professional? I find that to be an important trait for, for, for any professional. And, and so it's just, just for fun, I would share that I'm I just started a course on epidemiology just because I think it's fun and uh, I want to know what it is. I am curious, obviously, after the year and almost half of pandemic, I'd like to understand a little bit about this field of, uh, of public health. So, so to me, uh, someone who is always curious, always wants to learn, um, is, is, is someone that I would want to work with, um, is someone that I think will always be seeking ways to do things better. And to me, that constant desire to figure out how can I do this better is an important part of being um, a strong, you know, a, 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 a strong professional in whatever field, I think. Uh, what do you uh, see? Uh, are there areas that you continue to see compliance professionals uh, either uh, struggle with or perhaps put it another way, there's opportunity for continued growth and improvement? Uh, any areas that you've uh, been focusing on recently? Yeah, so I, 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 you know, I think this goes along the theme of uh, being curious. I think a lot of people uh, by nature are not comfortable with things that they're not familiar with. So using things like data. So when I when I talk about data, um, I, I see a lot of apprehension uh, and, and straight out sort of rejection from some of the some of the sort of more traditional practitioners and people would say, oh, I just, I just don't do quantitative stuff. Like I don't do data. Um, I, I find these two schools of people who say I do data and the other says, 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 you know, I do culture and it's like they both feel they don't need the other. And I find that very strange. It reminds me of the time when I was in the theology world, I would find people who say, I want to get a PhD and study theology. And then there is another school. So another school that says, I don't really need to learn theology. I just want to minister to people, which I just don't understand how either side could think that they don't need the other side. Um, and, and this is the same. I think we need a very interdisciplinary approach to compliance. And part of it is getting comfortable with things that you're not familiar with. And for a lot of compliance people, that's things like using science and using data. Um, it's, it's something that I always tell people, you don't need to be a data scientist. I mean, I joke, you know, I actually always shared with people, I, I wanted to be a, actually either sociology or psychology major when I was in college, um, didn't do it because they required statistics. And I, my first foray into statistics was a disaster. Uh, so uh, I shied away from those majors because I was so afraid of statistics. 
and here I am, right? So people find it when, when they know about my, my passion for advocating the use of data and that background, they found that just um, ironic. But I always say that means if I can appreciate data, then anybody could, because I'm pretty obvious about this. I don't do data. I just appreciate the use of data. I appreciate the use of scientific evidence in informing the type of things that we do. And I think what we, I would like to see compliance officers become more open-minded to and open to learning about would be things like social sciences and, and quantitative and qualitative studies, scientific methods, uh, understanding how researches are done, um, how to evaluate research outcomes and how to evaluate the application of research in what we do. So those are, you know, the, the more, um, uh, I think, intellectually robust and quantitative and qualitative challenges that I, I would love to see more compliance officers be open to. If we could turn now to that veiled land of the future. And where do you see compliance uh, professionals and compliance programs and indeed the compliance discipline into 2025 and perhaps even beyond? <laughs> Short answer is, I don't know. And uh, because where is the world going to be in 2025? Uh, I have no idea. Last year has taught me anything is that I don't know anything about tomorrow. But I can talk about where I think it needs to evolve. Um, and, and wouldn't surprise you to, to hear that I think it does need to evolve into a more uh, uh, quantitative and evidence-driven approach um, for, for a number of reasons. I think the first is for a lot of compliance officers, they're, um, they're still somewhat separated from the business. And, and, you know, again, I think a lot of times when, when you talk about differences between good and not strong and not so strong compliance officers, one of the factors that distinguishes them is their knowledge and familiarity with the business. And most businesses are multidisciplinary in nature. I mean, in any business organization, you don't have just engineers or salespeople. You have people who make products or you know, uh, deliver the services. You have people who market them. You have people who do finance and accounting. You have people who do PR. Most, most businesses are interdisciplinary in nature. So in, and, and compliance is the kind of function that if it works as it should, it should touch every part of the business. That means you really, there, if there's one function that needs to be versatile in understanding every function, every other function in the office and being able to work with them, that should be compliance. And that means the compliance needs to develop those skill sets so that they can really appreciate and understand and measure and be part of what the business does in all of those aspects. Um, I do also think the, you know, the measurements will be in, increasingly matter. I think we're at a point where people, whether it's investors or regulators or law enforcement, are increasingly going to ask, is this working? Um, you know, let's, let's say upper management in, in, and investors. Um, we are spending lots, millions and millions of dollars on compliance. That's just what we spend, not to count the hours that we spend in things like training. That's a lot of person power. We spend all these resources in this function. What is it doing? Is it doing anything uh, for our business in terms of actually accomplishing anything, improving anything? 
because it's not good enough just to say, we, if we have a compliance program, we can someday, if we get in trouble, we can reduce our fines. In that sense, you're just selling insurance. And the insurance sales tactic is not going to work forever. It's, it's already, I think, in a lot of businesses beginning to be challenged. So needing evidence and measurements for proving what we do is contributing something uh, is going to be demanded. So that's where I think it would need to go. Uh, unfortunately, we're near the end of our time, but I have a bonus question I've wanted to ask you for some time. Uh, I certainly have my own opinions, but I wondered what your opinions on is the question, should there be a compliance defense written into the FCPA? Absolutely not. So um, I feel very strongly about this. And uh, <laughs> and I'm very glad you asked me. Very, very few people have actually asked me that straight out. Um, so I've discussed this uh, in, in a lot of private discussions. So when you, when you think about it, compliance defense is uh, a defense that essentially says what just happened rarely happens, right? So it, it's a defense in the sense that it only comes into play when something bad or a violation has already occurred. So that's a given. So your, your defense in nature is that was an exception. Usually this doesn't happen in our business. Now think about it. If you go into a hospital to I don't know, have a small minor surgery and oops, the hospital accidentally amputated your hand and their defense is, wow, you're the only time this has ever happened. Our hospital has never had this kind of mistakes before, so we're not responsible. Goodbye. Does that fly? It doesn't fly in my book. Um, so to me, if you... Uh, the company has committed a crime, the fact that it rarely happens is goes towards remediating, remediating your culpability, but it, it should not take away your liability. That's my view. Well, now we are at the end of our time, but I wanted to thank you so much for uh, taking time to visit with me. This has been a ton of fun. I've wanted to do this for way too long. So thank you. Likewise. Thanks for having me. This is Tom Fox. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Compliance Handbook. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe and tune in next week. Until then, please leave us a review on iTunes. If you have any questions, you can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. Thanks again, and I look forward to visiting with you again.